the Bible, God's book, God's first two chapters in his book gives us a way to cut through the inflation of human nonsense and to give us free gifts. Who doesn't like free gifts? We all like free gifts. Well, only human beings have the capacity to understand God's free gifts, but only humans, oh, the humanity, have the capacity to be so ignorant as to ignore them as well. We don't want to ignore them, so come on in. Let's take a look at God's free gift. Hello. channel. We are always glad somebody shows up and listens. We want everybody to listen because we love talking about God, because we think talking about God, the way the Bible talks about God, the way God talks to us in the Bible is a very normal thing for every human beings that we're designed to do this. And we don't mean no harm to anybody. We just know that this stuff that the Bible gives us is the best stuff. It's great stuff. As my best friend told me, who's also my son, one of my best friends, mind you, he said the Bible is B-I-B-L-E, basic instructions before leaving earth. I love that. The Bible is incredible. It's incredible because it uplifts us like nothing else on this planet can uplift us. And so that's our job. Our job is to bring the uplifting news of the Bible to our lips. You know, hey, listen, we, we want you to follow this channel on YouTube. We want you to share it if you can. We want you to follow us on Spotify. We want you to follow us on the podcast of iTunes. We want you to follow us and we want you to share us. Absolutely. But hey, at the end of the day, if we just help you sound smarter at your cocktail party, then that's fine with us because we just want people talking about God. Anyhow, I, I got to talk about God. And so that's why we do this here at the Publical Channel. And at the Publical Channel, we just try to keep it simple. We pray and we read the Bible and we talk about the Bible. So I suppose without any further ado, let's continue our look at the first two chapters of the first book of God's book. Um, and that is Genesis, the first two chapters of Genesis, where we've been spending our time, and we're going to continue to spend our time there. We're going to look at two passages, uh, Genesis chapter 1, verse 26 to 28, and then we're going to also look at Genesis chapter 2, verse 5 to 17. That's where we'll be, and we'll read it as we go. But before we go any further, let's indeed pray. Just like the Lord Jesus teaches us how to, how to pray. Probably learned it a long time ago. Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Hallowed be your name. Hallowed be your name. Hallowed be your name just simply means, Lord, do we speak well of you. So we are here to speak well of you. But anyhow, we do pray your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And we pray that you would indeed give us our daily bread and that you would take away our sins as we, as we forgive others. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. That's the key. That's the rub. Deliver us from evil, Lord. Get us thinking straight. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. All right, so the first passage goes like this, and it's Genesis chapter 1, verse 26 to 28. We've already read it. We've already talked about it, but we need to say more about it because this stuff in Genesis 1 and 2 
is the kind of stuff that you could talk about for a lifetime. It's the kind of stuff that you should talk about every day or think about every day. And so therefore there's so much in this, this little condensed, you know, storyline, um, literature. Yeah. History. Yeah. So much for us to absorb and to take in like a sponge. So Genesis chapter one, verse 26 to 28 is all about the atoms. And I'll tell you that about the, that in a minute. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. Let them have dominion over the fish and of the sea and over the birds of the heaven and over the livestock and all the earth and over the every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image and the image of God he created him. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, subdue it, have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the every living thing that moves on the earth. Okay, well, there we have it. You know, first thing I got to say is, is uh, it's hard for me to read Genesis chapter 1, verse 26 to 28, because it's the title of a boat that I fish on, Genesis. Anyhow, we catch a lot of fish and have a lot of fun on the Genesis, but we're here to take a look at these three verses and really absorb what's going on and what God's free gift really is here. And so to really um, capture the meaning of free, God's free gift, Adam, it's important that we understand that we speak English and the Bible wasn't written in English. And so sometimes there's some hurdles to overcome in the translation of the Bible into our native tongue, which is English. And English sometimes doesn't do us any favors. And the translators do have kind of a big job ahead of them as they try to you know, sort out how to say this. And one of the troubles you know, that we run into with the you know, words that are in Hebrew, bringing them over to English, especially when it comes to Adam, is that the word Adam is the word for human beings. And so man or mankind equals Adam, equals human, equals this is us, God's reality show. Um, This is us. We are Adam. We are all Adams because Adam used in this verse. So if you actually took, if you really wanted to hear the Hebrew behind the text, you would substitute every word that says man in these verses and just put in the word Adam. So the Bible calls us Adams. God calls us Adams. And so God's gift is Adam. In the first opening scenes of Genesis 1 and 2, it is very clear that the climax or the high point of God's creation is indeed the atoms. There is nothing like the atoms out of all that God creates. The atoms, the atoms are supposed to indeed fill the earth. The atoms are supposed to subdue the earth. The atoms are supposed to multiply, fill, subdue, and have dominion over all things in the earth. So the idea of man um, is the word Adam in the Bible. And Adam comes from earth, you know, so we're going to find out in the second, you know, scene that we'll take a look at in Genesis chapter two, that Adam literally comes out of earth. We all come out of earth. There's a part of earth in all of us. Um, But before we go any further, let's just slow down for a second and admit that you know, sometimes we get bogged down in the way that English words work. And, and I gotta, you know, 
I give a little bit of, of credit to those, you know, who are called females or women. And, you know, there's a bit of a gripe, I think, right off the bat, because the word female and woman actually seems to be, you know, attached to male or man. And that's more of an English thing than it is a Hebrew thing. The Hebrew word on play here is Adam. And then when it breaks away from the word Adam for humanity, it has two other Hebrew words, which are Zakar and Nakiba. So Zakar is is in reference to, well, the you know the the sexual being of males, and the Nakiba is related to the sexual being of females. So the big point here is that the text is really focused on all of us as Adams, that male and female are both. Adams. Um, and I hate to say, you know, so maybe I'll just keep using the word Zakar for the men and, and uh, Nakiba for the ladies, because it gives us a different vibe when we don't hear some sort of echo of some sort of domination of men over women, you know, that kind of thing. And I think that's, you know, part of the gripe is, is that the words seem to be, you know, the words related to the ladies seems to be built on the word from men. And that's not really true in the Hebrew. We are all Adams and Adams is a non-sexual or non-biological reference, just the, in the sense of biology, meaning that we are a critter um, to start with. Um, so even the word, you know, in English really is weird because the, the prefix woe and F-E are not even really prefixes in English. The, these are, are actual names that come out of other language, and that's what makes English so weird is we get so many of our words, you know, from the French or, you know, from other places, you know, we kind of drag, English just drags a ton of words in from other sources and then kind of makes them their own words. But this, this idea that we are wrestling with is all about the atoms. And then, of course, God makes the Adams into Zakars and Nakibas, and that is just a simple reference to their reproductive capabilities. There is absolutely no hint of some sort of social standing. You see where I'm coming from here? In the text, if we use the word Zakar and Nakiba, you know, as our words for the ladies and the gentlemen, we, we get the better sense that there are no social divisions in this part of the text, which is absolutely essential for us to grab a hold of because it's the atoms, the atoms, you know, both sides of the reproductive chain, the atoms are created to establish what we just talked about last week, and that is day seven. The atoms are created for day seven. The atoms are created for the garden. The atoms are created for Eden. And I had a buddy of mine say, um, you know, it was Jerome actually. Jerome said to me, hey, couldn't day seven or shouldn't day seven be seen as the kingdom of God? Absolutely. Day seven is the kingdom of God. I love that, uh, you know, that comment and, and I'm building it right into here. But this whole passage right here is a cool passage because it's really setting out to answer the basic worldview questions. And the basic worldview questions are absolutely essential to us. And they are, who are we? Where are we? What's the problem? And what's the solution? What surprises me 
about the modern Adam. The modern Adam seems to be absolutely clueless and in, you know, and, and shrugs off these basic worldview questions. Nobody seems to be terrified at our own existence. I, I think that we ought to wake up and be terrified at our own existence. And the good news is when we're terrified about our own existence and we ask these worldview questions and we come to the Bible, our soul is comforted right away. But there is a surprising amount of disinterest in today's nihilistic economy of atoms. Uh, and, and what you think of who you are actually determines your behavior. So there's no more important questions than these basic worldview questions. And Genesis 1 and 2 is the absolute best worldview that you can bring into your life. I, I can't find anything that compares to it when we slow down and take a think about what is going on here with these basic worldview questions in Genesis chapter 1 and 2, which is so positive. The dignity, and I mean it, the dignity of the atoms, the males, the females, the ladies, the gentlemen, the, the blokes and the sheilas, the zakars and the kibas, the dudes, you know, or dudettes, is unmatched when we really take a good think about Genesis 1 and 2. Our problem as Adams is only one of our own defining or lack of defining. It's certainly not God's problem because God has set out to build us up and to give us a really, really clear, good understanding of ourselves. And so honestly, no matter how you carve yourself up, or carve yourself out as a Zakar or a Nakiba, you are an atom. You are an atom that, that God has made. Well, let's not get too far ahead of ourselves. You know, when it comes to our snarky little world that we live in today, the modern world, we have the evolutionists telling us negatively that we're just animals. We have Aristotle, you know, the seemingly great mind of Aristotle telling us that we're just political animals. And then there's other philosophers that liken us to just religious animals. Or then there's, you know, smart Alex like Franklin, uh, Ben Franklin, who says that we're just tool using animals. And then there's other philosophers in our modern day who say that we really don't even have free will because we're suckers for everything. And so we don't have any real free will, which means we don't have any real dignity and we don't have any real life. You take a guy like a, a psychologist like Freud, he tells us that we're just walking libidos, really, just a big sexual impulse. And then our postmodern nihilistic kind of world says we are absolutely nothing because there is nothing. And I think the point is just this, without God's revelation, without God interrupting us and telling us something like he does in Genesis 1 and 2, the atoms are just lost in a pathetic, dignity-killing maze. We are our own big problem. But that's not the Bible's perspective. That is not God's perspective. We do it to ourselves. 
God certainly doesn't put us down. God's building us up. And I just can't imagine how we can do better than this, the material that we have. Genesis 1, 26 to 28, is, it's very elaborate. It's poetic. It's, it's kind of expanded. When you consider all of the other days and things that are created, it's day six that expands and elaborates in poetic form, in structure, and in detail that the atoms... Um, that the atoms have a very, very special place. And it's very clear through the words, you know, rule and subdue and fill and multiply that, that the atoms are God's vice regents. Yes, in all of creation, we are partnering as God's vice regents. And biblically, an atom is the image of God. Biblically, an atom is the likeness of God. Now, the Bible has a lot more to say about human beings, and I think the Bible builds out a more holistic picture of human beings than human beings ever build out about themselves. You know, we oftentimes focus on one sliver of us as human beings, but we neglect the whole picture of human beings. If you were to read on in the Bible, the Bible talks about human beings as body, soul, heart, and spirit, and that those four things are quite different, that our bodies, yes, they're part of the biology system. They're simple. They're biological. Yeah, you know, sure, we have a body, and, you know, dust is going to return to dust because we were made from dust. Yeah, we all get that. But the Bible talks about us having a soul as well. And when the Bible talks about our soul, it speaks about our soul a little bit differently than we might think it does. Our soul is our base of passions and our drive for appetites and shelters and, well, even sex. Um, and then there's our heart, you know, and, and our heart, biblically speaking, is kind of the control center. It's the control center for our facial expressions, our tongue, our limbs, our intellect, our sensibility, our willpower is all how the Bible refers to us as our heart. And then there's our spirit. And the spirit's an interesting thing because biblically speaking, our spirit is the place of our moods and our vitality. And so interestingly, the heart can sometimes rescue the spirit or sometimes the heart can damage the spirit. But it's a very interesting way of seeing us um, as image of God, as human beings, sapiens, as the atoms, as Genesis 1 likes to call us, the atoms. Um, and, and so this is a, you know, a, a pretty cool picture of who we should see ourselves as and who we should think of ourselves to be. Anyhow, let's just get right to the passage because it generates a question almost right off the bat. And the passage generates a question like this. Who is us? I already um, had, had said two talks ago back in, in um, the, the gift of dismissal that Genesis 1 properly read is really God dismissing any other option for any other God other than himself, which includes the human beings, which includes all of the nature you know, uh, the stars, the celestial bodies, the things in nature, all of that is dismissed as being possibilities for God. It, it just does not represent. It doesn't even come close. Those are God's created things. And, and so when the Bible kicks in with this passage and says, let us, some smarty pants say, well, see there, the Bible's really just polytheistic. It's not. It's not at all. So what are our options concerning this let us 
make man in our image after our likeness. Who's us? Who's our, you know, who, who are we talking about here? Well, on one hand, a lot of Christians jump right to the fact that, well, Jesus reveals that God is Father, Spirit, and, and Son. And, a, you know, that makes God a, a singular plurality, and we call that the Trinity. And, and that does fit Jesus' later development of God. It just doesn't fit very well with what Moses is thinking about. And Moses is writing this. He has no, nothing, no news on Jesus um, or necessarily the plurality, you know, within God. So maybe it's not that, maybe it is that, maybe it's just nice that it works out that way, um, and it does work out that way, so that's fine. I don't think it's a bad option at all to see that, but there's also the, you know, literary use of a, of a royal plural. You know, it's kind of like me getting a package all by myself, and I say, let's see what we have here, you know. Um, let's being a contraction of let us, the same thing that we're hearing here. And that's a possibility, you know, uh, the royal plural is oftentimes used in our own vocabulary. So I don't know why it'd be impossible for God to use it. Um, and then there's also the, I think probably the, and I'm not going to, uh, I'm not going to play too much favoritism with this, but I do think that there's a lot of evidence to point to what is on view here is God is speaking to the heavenly or angelic realm. The Bible will later on make clear usage of the fact that there is a realm beyond our scope of seeing and touching. And there seems to also be a realm that precedes us. Uh, the very opening line in Genesis, you know, begs the, the perspective that there was something else preceding all of this. The Spirit is hovering over the deep, implies that it, the Spirit is hovering over something, and, and what that something is is chaos, and God makes cosmos out of chaos. That's another talk that we did. But I think the main thing that we need to see here is that by the time you get down to these verses, this gets very personal. The creation of the atoms, you know, the creation of the atom and then the atoms, you know, the splitting of atom into, you know, atoms is very personal. You know, in everything else that was created preceding this, we hear, let it be. And that's a bit cold. Here we have and here, let us make. Not just let it be, but let us make. Um, it's a very personal kind of touch to the wording. And instead of having the more impersonal, and it was so for everything else that's been created so far in the creation account of Genesis 1, we now hear the, the language of blessing three times. If we actually read to Genesis uh, chapter 1, verse 30, um, we would hear blessing three different times. Instead of, and it was so, which God says about the other things that he creates, now we hear blessing. And so once again, this whole thing, when it comes to humans, when it comes to the atoms, gets very personal in its feel, very warm in its feel. And we should be warmed by this because this is us. This is who we're talking about. So 
let's get back at the image of God and have that a thing. What does it mean that we are the image of God? Well, I think first of all, and even biblically later on in the story, we're going to find out that idolatry is one of our dumbest ideas. And the reason why idolatry is dumb is because we actually replace ourselves, if you think about it, which is just classic for us as Adams, that we are so willing to just take ourselves out of the picture. If we are the image of God, then it's quite silly to make an image of God. Do you get it? We're supposed to be the image of God, not something made of stone, not something made of wood, not something that we carve and make with our own hands. We are what God has made with his hands. And so we're just taking ourselves out of the game. And that's dumb, man. I want to be the image of God. I don't want some little statue being the image of God. Not at all. That's silly. Well, the other thing is here is, is that, you know, in God making man, you know, in God making the atoms, it's very clear that all humans and what it means to be in the image of God is that all humans are created equal. And not only are we created equal, but we're created, all of us are created to be kingly representations of God as the real king. So we are designed to be kingly representations of the king. We are designed to be the representation factor of God here on earth. And that's a pretty cool thing to think about. And the ladies and the gentlemen, the Zakars and the Nakibas are united in social rank. There is absolutely no Bible business making you know, the ladies inferior to men. None. What it means to be a Zakar, what it means to be a Nakiba, is to be made in the image of God. They are both given the absolute equal social rank and file according to God. So what does that mean? That means, hey, you Nakibas, hey, you ladies, don't blame God for the bad behavior of the Zakars, of the dudes. No. That's the dude's problem all on their own. Don't blame God. God is not telling the dudes that they're better than the Nakibas. He's not telling the Zakars that, no, it's not there in the text at all. There is absolute equal social standing in the Zakars and the Nakibas. The only difference is the reproductive side of their Adam, so to speak. And then the other word is likeness, which is, you know, pointing out that we are quite different. We are like, we're not the same. We're not of the same substance. But even though we're different, there's something so sweet to being called God's likeness. I mean, we really are different. God is spirit. The atoms are earthlings. God is eternal. The atoms are mortal. God is all-powerful. Humans are weak and frail by comparison. But God makes us, and he makes us in a way that we are faithful and adequate to be atoms, mirroring God, and breathing God's life, exercising dominion as we multiply over the face of the earth in relationship with God. There is a sweetness to the likeness and the image of God that God says that we are so sweet. 
And back to the image of God, very interesting, I think, because the popular um, you know, culture around Moses and the people of Israel at the time of this writing, the ancient Near Eastern you know, ideas, they actually used this expression, uh, the image of God, which is totally biblical. You know, I mean, it's the Bible that always grabs a hold of things that humans already talk about and use, but then uses it in such a completely redefined and reinterpreted way. So the image of God can be found in the conversation of all the cultures around Moses in the ancient Near East. And, and, and essentially, essentially the image of God was always, you know, a term fit for idols or statues, and it was also a term fit for the kings or to the pharaohs or the emperors, the dictators, whoever was in charge. They could be the image of God, and the little statue could be the image of God, but the Bible kicks in and says, no, 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 no. The image of God is the Adam's. And it's very interesting historically for us to understand that Christianity absolutely kicked the whole idea of the divine right of kings to the curb. Um, and it also kicked class distinctions to the curb. Christianity is the first to kick class distinctions and the divine right of kings to the curb. They did it to Rome first, um, as they somehow, in without picking up a gun or a sword or a knife, somehow toppled Rome just with the idea of Jesus Christ as Lord. Um, and it has to be said that there's no doubt that Christianity did kind of lose its way, especially the Christianity that got involved in governing. See, once, Christ, once Christianity had caused the fall of Rome, um, it, there was a power vacuum that Christianity started to fill. And when Christianity, or at least the political side of Christianity, started to fill in the political side of things, in Rome, it kind of lost its way on this whole idea of the divine right of kings and class distinctions. And so I would call about, you know, the thousand years between, you know, after Constantine to, you know, somewhere, somewhere around the Renaissance, you know, the 1400s, about a thousand years. Uh, not everybody, mind you, went along with this, but it did kind of lose its way and went into a bit of a dark period because it lost some of its basic tenets. And that is there's, there really is no class distinctions when it comes to God. And there really, there really is no such as thing, no such thing as the divine right of Kings. It would be Locke and Hobbes in the 1600s that would, would do the divine right of Kings in from a philosophical level. And they were Christians. They were doing it from a Christian standpoint. And I just love the fact that, you know, Frederick Nietzsche, you know, that very negative philosopher who said that God is dead, he rightfully blames democracy on Christianity. You see, he hates Christianity, really. Um, but he blames democracy on Christianity because he sees it. He sees the link between democracy and Christianity. And so he blames democracy on Christianity. It might need to be said. Nietzsche hated democracy too. He thought that was the stupidest idea on the planet. Anyhow, the point is that the Bible is making, that God is making, is that we are all 
to rule and to subdue and have dominion. We are all to represent with authority, to make cosmos out of chaos. All of the atoms, every atom is, is a maker. And, and every atom is called to make, you know, cosmos from chaos out of God's love, but not self-love. But the problem is, is that we are suckers for bad government. As human beings, we are truly suckers for bad government. And so the divine right of government seems to be getting a foothold in the way that people, the young people especially, see government. Us old folks, we know better, supposedly. Um, but if you talk to the young people, and if you listen to at least one side of the political divide, it seems as though the divine right of government is starting to become an idea. Well, humans are good at coming up with terrible ideas. And humans are good at destroying human dignity as it's falling. Well, shouldn't come as a big surprise, but enough negativity. Let's get on and get back to the very positive thing that we are being told in the first two chapters of God's book. B-I-B-L-E. Basic instructions before leaving earth. I love that. Anyhow, the next passage comes from chapter 2, verse 5 to 17. There was no bush of the field yet. Um, and there was no land or there was no bush of the field in the land. No small plant of the field had yet sprung up for the Lord. God had not caused it to rain on the land. There was no man, no Adam to work the ground. And a mist was going up from the land and was watering the whole face of the ground. Then the Lord formed the man of the dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils, the breath of life, and the Adam became a living creature. And the Lord God planted the Adam in the garden in the east, and there he put the Adam whom he had formed. And, and notice that I did read Adam into that because this is, this is the Adam. We are now taking another look backwards. So the way this passage works is that it's not a second creation story. It's an in-depth look. It's an expansion because it's so important. This part of the story is so important to understand. It's an expansion of the Genesis chapter 1, verse 26 to 28 passage. And it's a very, very personal touch because now we're still looking at, once again, the atoms and God making the atoms. It was Genesis 1, 26 to 28 that already told us that the atoms are going to be split into the Nakibas and the Zakars, uh, the males and the females, etc. But that has nothing to do with social standing whatsoever. They both find their equal footing in being in the image of God, being in the likeness of God. That's right. The, the, the Zakibas and the Zakars. The Nakibas and the Zakars are both on equal footing in the image of God. But this story here does take on a very personal and very loving, warm-hearted take. And that is, you know, the very word formed, the Lord God formed. That word formed is more than what we think of it in English. It's the idea of what an artist does. It's the idea of, of a craftsman um, working a piece of art, forming something. And what the artist here, God, forms is, is some dust, some dirt, you know, from the earth. And after and, and informing it. So so even the word Adam, Adam, 
um, is built on the, you know, and if we were to say it in Hebrew, it would sound more like Hadam, Hadama. That's what it sounds like in Hebrew, Hadama. But built into the very word Hadama is Dama, which is earth. So as Adam's built into the biblical word for us is the word earth that we are tied to the earth because we're made from the earth. We're made from the particles, the dust, the dirt, whatever you might say. But the magic is when God gives his life-giving breath into the very nostrils of this artistic expression that God has made. Now, I think that's absolutely beautiful stuff because, you know, when God breathed into Adam's nostrils, what God does to give life really resembles our basic life-saving course, doesn't it? I mean, in our basic life-saving technique, well, at least we used to, you know. Uh, pinch the nostril, breathe, you know, into the person, push on their chest. Well, this is supposed to come across as a very, very personal touch, that God's personal touch, breathing into our nostrils, breathing into our face, which is the most tender part of our being, well, it gives us life. And even the word put, you know, some of the biggest words of impact are the smallest words in the Bible. The little word put, that the Lord God planted a garden in the east, and in the east there he put the Adam who he had formed. It also gives this huge impression that there is an intentional belonging that God gives to the garden that in the garden is God himself. And we see that later on, that God is part of the garden, but the garden's a beautiful place. And it becomes this very intentional sense of belonging that God would put us into this garden, into this Eden, which of course is the day seven as well, which is the kingdom of God. We'll finish out the, the Bible with the book of Revelation, making clear reference to you know, what God is doing is getting us back to the kingdom of God, getting us back to day seven. The Garden of Eden is paradise. The kingdom of God is paradise. Jesus tells the thief on the cross, today you'll be with me in paradise, in Eden, in the garden. The garden remade, redone all for us. I just don't know how you can get any better as far as good thinking on any given day of the week. The last little portion of, of this passage, the Lord God took the man, put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and to keep it. The Lord God commanded the man, the Adam, saying, you may surely eat of the tree of the garden, but the tree of knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it you shall surely die. Well, that sounds a little harsh, especially for our butt hurt kind of ears. But the point is very simple. The atoms are made and designed and are quite capable and able and should follow God's words of instruction. And we got to admit, this is kindergarten level stuff. This is not complicated stuff. The, the idea of the tree of life and the tree of knowledge of good and evil come together to give us a very simple picture here, one that we can learn in kindergarten. Let God control and determine good and evil and keep life and living. But there is an alternative. 
The Bible doesn't talk about the alternative here too much here, but there is an alternative. If you determine or control good and evil apart from God, your life and your living will be limited. And so in lies the beginning of our understanding of the problem. But we're not going to focus on that right now. That's for another talk. God won't let us control and determine evil without him forever. Can you think of how terrible this place would be if God let all of the evils of our doing last forever? That would be terrible. The atoms are made for freedom and the kind of freedom that has responsibility and consequences. So it's the Bible's territory here that the atoms are made for freedom, but a freedom that means responsibility and consequences. Responsibility and consequences that God explains very clearly and very simply. And once again, at the end of all of this, it should be clear that our only problem is ourselves. It has nothing to do with God. It's ourselves. We do ourselves in that this representation represents all of us, not some of us, all of us. I have a 98-year-old grandmother who most people would say is, is, is the person that never did anything wrong, but she wouldn't tell you that. She would say there's lots of things that she did wrong and that she herself is, 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 is exactly what the Bible t is talking about here taking control, taking determination away from God and making determinations about good and evil apart from God and life is limited. Which begs the question, well, what next? Well, that's why you got to keep reading the Bible for Pete's sakes. But let's just stop and pause and, and get what is on view here for us. Once again, our problem is ourselves, not God, because God and God's view of us as his vice regents you know, with no social division between the ladies and the gentlemen, the Zakars and the Nakibas. That is a wonderful picture. And that each and every one of us are representations of God on earth, that we are meant to, to rule in a godly, loving way. And that nobody should be ruling over us but God himself. These are the substance of, of beauty. This is exactly what we should want to hear. But as humans, we have a nasty way of chucking it all to the wind and giving people, just people, the right to rule our lives when we're the ones who should be ruling our lives under God. No exceptions. And everybody is invited at the same exact level. You see, God invented the idea of being created equal. It is a biblical concept that is unmatched and unheard anywhere. And the Declaration of Independence in the United States is merely mimicking the words of God. That it's self-evident, and it should be, that we are all created equal. Well, for some reason, it's not. Because we as human beings do ourselves in. We replace ourselves and we have a negative view of ourselves because we have a negative view of God. Let's not do it. Let's not do that. Let's, let's go with God's view of us. All right, next time. See you then.